Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast about it to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. I hope you're doing well and thanks for listening. On today's episode, we'll go over the latest news around Europe, Serie A, and Napoli. In part two, we'll do some transfer talk, but instead of focusing on a particular player, We will consider some possible and some hypothetical transfer swaps. And in part 3, we'll review another classic Napoli match. Today, we'll talk about the 2011-2012 Coppa Italia final against Juventus. So starting with Europe, on Saturday, the German Bundesliga restarted. And I won't talk too much about the results because this is a Serie A podcast. But there were plenty of takeaways from those matches. We got to see some of the protocol that were in place, and most of them were to be expected. Multiple buses were used to shuttle players to the stadiums. Of course, there were no fans in attendance. Everyone but the players were wearing masks, and substitutes were socially distanced. Also, goal celebrations were socially distanced as well, though we did see the occasional high-five or fist bump. A few interesting nuggets from each of the matches. On Friday, Borussia Dortmund sporting director Michael Zork spoke ahead of his club's derby against Schalke, saying that if a player does not feel like playing, then he is free to not play. Ultimately, they all did play, but I'm curious to see if any Serie A clubs take the same approach. In the Leipzig-Freiburg match, Leipzig used airplane stairs to connect the stands to the pitch, so the substitutes were able to sit in the stands socially distanced. Augsburg's manager Heiko Herlich was not on the bench for his club's match against Wolfsburg. Herlich violated one of the isolation rules imposed by the Bundesliga. Apparently, he left his hotel to buy toothpaste and face cream, so he'll need to undergo additional tests and can't return to the team until he's had a double negative test. I was more sympathetic to Union's manager, Urs Fischer, 
who also breached one of the isolation protocols and therefore was not in attendance for his club's match against Bayern Munich. Fischer left to be with his family after the passing of his father-in-law, which is completely understandable, and frankly, I would have done the exact same thing. FC Cologne had a bit of extra support for its match against Mainz. Cologne's 1,300 season ticket holders sent in their favorite club items, which were draped over the empty seats for their players to see. And on Friday, Werder Bremen, who were scheduled to play Bayern Leverkusen on Monday, announced that one of its players, who had remained unnamed, tested positive for COVID-19. So that player has been placed in isolation. And their managing director, Frank Brahman, came out and said that this is evidence that the protocol worked. Claudio Pizzaro has also been quarantined after his daughter tested positive, though I'm not sure if he's the one player that they were talking about. In any event, this is a good opportunity to see how effective the protocols are. In terms of the rules, VAR was still used. Clubs were permitted to make five substitutions, and fans were told not to attend the stadiums. That didn't stop a few dozen Bayern fans from showing up, but after speaking to the police, who were there in full force, those fans dispersed. And thankfully, there were not too many injuries to report, certainly no more than you would see on any given match day. A player who did get hurt in warm-ups was American Giovanni Reina for Borussia Dortmund. So all in all, I would say this was a pretty successful relaunch for the Bundesliga. In Spain, La Liga is inching closer to a restart in June. Some differences in Spain include playing matches throughout the week, but ensuring clubs have at least three days in between matches. I'm not sure what the motivation behind that is, if I had to guess... I'd say they're trying to maximize TV ratings, but that's going to be a nightmare to schedule, and I think the situation is complicated enough as it is. La Liga is also looking at later start times for some of the warmer regions. In Turkey, a staff member at Galatasaray has tested positive for COVID-19, so the club has suspended training for six days, but the Turkish league is still scheduled to resume on June 12th, and in Russia, the football championship will start again on June 21st. Moving on to Serie A, on Friday morning, FIGC, Serie A, and the football doctors met. The league raised their concerns with the protocols, and without resolving these concerns, they do not intend to resume group training on the 18th. The main concerns being the team quarantine if there's a positive test, the retreat prior to the season, and the liability of the doctors. Now, if you're not aware of that last issue, the protocols were originally drafted such that the club's medics, who are part of the Italian Football Doctors Association, would have to accept liability, i.e. financial responsibility, for positive cases, which is absolutely ridiculous. And it got to the point where some of the club medics had threatened not to show up. And they're absolutely right. The clubs need to take on this risk. If you ask the doctors for their suggestion, they probably would say not to play in the first place. So if the clubs and the league are going to insist on playing, which we know is for financial reasons, in other words, if they want the rewards of playing, they need to also take on the risk. Now, apparently the meeting was constructive and they came up with solutions to these issues. So an updated protocol was sent to the government on Sunday to review. And the next step is for FIGC President Gravina to speak to everyone's favorite politician, Minister of Sport Vincenzo Spadafora. And speaking of Spadafora, he was on a program called Tonight Italy on Friday night, where he talked about the resumption of group training on May 18th and the resumption of Serie on June 13th. He also talked about what we just talked about, namely how clubs are already having challenges implementing their own protocols because they don't have the facilities to isolate players. And he talked about the news report that one of the presidents had their team doing a scrimmage in training, which is a violation of the protocol. And that's a reference to the reports that Latsu are holding three-on-three sessions in training, which there really isn't much evidence for. 
And actually on Saturday, league inspectors visited both Napoli and Lazio's training facilities to validate whether these clubs were in compliance with the protocol, which they were. Finally, Spadafora did say that he has the maximum availability to meet and that there is a willingness to review the quarantine rule in a less restrictive way, which I interpret to mean that the German approach is on the table. And I think that's a really positive development as up until this point, the government has been pretty firm on the two-week team quarantine rule. Now, he did also qualify this statement by emphasizing that everyone must respect the restrictions they've imposed on themselves, which Serie A teams seem to be struggling with. And I did feel like Spadafora was getting some retribution with his statements because this is a guy that, despite having the support of the Prime Minister, has taken an absolute beating in the media for stalling the whole process. So I felt like this was his way of defending himself. It was like he was saying, look at all these issues with the protocols that have basically been shoved down my throat, so cut me some slack. Then on Saturday, Spadafora took to Facebook again, where amongst other things, he talked about how many players have reached out to him on social media to express their concerns. He also mentioned the government is working hard to make sure that after the championship is restarted, that it can also finish. And I just wanted to make a quick point here. Last episode, we talked about how the clubs voted on June 13th as the date to resume. That was subject to government approval and the government will monitor the situation. Now, as football fans, I think we tend to take a narrow focus and criticize the government for not being as efficient as Germany or for stalling or even secretly wanting the league to end. And I'm guilty of some of this, too. I previously suggested that the government was waiting to see what happens in other leagues. But we have to remember that football is just a part of a bigger picture. The government is slowly phasing out restrictions across the country. And as Prime Minister Conte explains himself, the government is taking a calculated risk because they can't afford to wait for a vaccine. The damage to the economic and social structure would be too severe. So the resumption of group training on the 18th coincides with the reopening of shops, restaurants, and churches, of course with the appropriate social distancing measures in place. Gyms, swimming pools, and rec centers will reopen in Italy on May 25th. Travel will open up on June 3rd, and cinemas and theaters on June 15th. So when the government says they want to monitor the situation, they're not talking about seeing how things play out in other football leagues, though they're probably doing that too. What they're really talking about is monitoring for a second wave of COVID-19. So I expect the government to approve the June 13th proposal, because that's actually at the tail end of the phases, but with the condition that if there is a second wave, everything will be shut down, including football. In other news, a few more clubs have reported no positive tests, including Udinese and Lecce. Two Parma players are being kept in isolation after testing positive for COVID-19. Now, both of those tests could be false positives, as their second test both came back negative, but the club is being precautious and isolating them anyways. Moving on to Napoli, let's start with a big report on Friday, where just about every football media outlet was reporting that Dries Mertens had agreed to terms with Inter, and the deal was a two-year contract for €6 million Euros a year plus bonuses. This is more than Napoli's offer, which including the signing bonus would be €5 million Euros a year plus bonuses. But then later on Friday, we saw further reports that Napoli are still very much in the picture and that Mertens may meet again with De Laurentiis to leverage this offer to get Napoli to match it. Also, Carlo Alvino, who's probably the leading Napoli reporter in Italy, tweeted that Mertens' head or mind is still on the blue and a little bit on the black, suggesting that Napoli is still the preference, but indeed he is thinking about Inter as well. Alvino elaborated on Saturday, saying the only certainty is that there is still room to work out a deal with Napoli. 
So we'll definitely be interesting to see how this plays out. We know that Romelu Lukaku is courting Mertens and that there were reports that Mertens asked him about finding a place in Milan. Today, Corriere dello Sport reported that Conte spoke to Mertens and Napoli to talk about the project they have for Mertens at Inter. And at the same time, Gattuso is reportedly doing his part to convince Mertens to stay. We also know that Inter seem likely to sell Lautaro to Barcelona, and they've targeted a few strikers, including Edison Cavani and Timo Werner. And I wonder whether signing one of those players would affect Mertens' decision, or conversely, whether Inter would still pay the same price for Mertens if they signed one of them. They certainly have the backing to afford that price, even if it meant putting him on the bench. I think Alexis Sanchez makes something like 5 million euros to sit on the bench, and his loan spell ends in the summer. So in fact, Inter could be courting Mertens to replace Sanchez more than to replace Lautaro. In other news, last episode we mentioned that Costas Manolas picked up a knock in training. He's undergone further tests that have revealed that he has a second degree distraction of the semi-membrous muscle of the right thigh, which will keep him out for two months. And my first reaction was this is not a good sign for Serie A in general, and it had me wondering how many more players would get hurt after not really training properly for the last few months. Then I read how he got hurt, which is absolutely infuriating. Manolas got hurt attempting a bicycle kick in a game of football tennis. For those who don't know what football tennis is, it's really more like volleyball with soccer rules, so actually the right way to spike the ball is with a scissor kick. But what pisses me off is that football tennis is actually part of training because it can be done while socially distancing. After all I've read about the club's medics bitching and complaining about the risk of players getting hurt if play resumes, no one at the club thought football tennis is not a good idea. Fortunately, we have Nikola Maksimovic on the bench who can slide back into the starting role. When Maksimovic wasn't hurt, he covered for Koulibaly and Koulibaly should be ready to go now as well. And if one of those guys gets hurt, then we're in a bit of trouble. You're looking at either playing Luperto or moving Di Lorenzo into the middle and playing Malqui at right back. And we did see Gattuso use Di Lorenzo as a center back for a stretch of five games before moving him back to right back. So that's going to do it for the news. In part two, we'll do some transfer talk. Okay, so today we're going to do something a little bit different on the transfer portion of the show, which was suggested by our friend Eddie. There's been a lot of talk about the financial implications of COVID-19 and how that will impact the Mercato, and a lot of reputable people are suggesting we could see more swaps this year than perhaps in years past. Eddie asked us to consider swaps and players we would like to see on Napoli. So I'm going to do two that are more realistic based on what's available on the market today, and two that are purely hypothetical. The first swap that came to mind was a swap with Chelsea for Jeremy Boga, but then I read yesterday that Chelsea are not expected to exercise their buyback clause, which is actually great because I think the player that Chelsea would want in return is Arkadouche Milik, and I don't really want to see him go. But that doesn't mean a swap for Boga is off the table, it just means that Napoli would be swapping with Sassuolo instead of Chelsea. So what would Sassuolo look for in return? 
While they're an excellent attacking team, they do struggle on the defensive end. Sassuolo allow opponents plenty of opportunities, they struggle to defend the counterattack, and they rank among the lowest in the league in aerial duels won. So the player I would propose to swap with Sassuolo is Elseed Kusai. I mentioned last episode that Kusai's agent told the club he does not intend to renew his contract, which expires in 2021. He would certainly improve Sassuolo's back end, and he's only 26 years old, so he has plenty to offer. Whether Kusai would want to go to Sassuolo is a different story. He probably wants to go to a big club, but for argument's sake, let's assume he agrees to terms with Sassuolo. For this to happen, Napoli would have to send some cash with the defender, probably in the neighborhood of 7 to 10 million euros, which is fine. We can afford that. If you listen to the pod regularly, you know that I'm fond of Boga, but I don't think I've explained why. First, we need reinforcement on the wing with Callejon expected to leave. Second, Boga is only 23 years old and I think he's just about to hit his prime. And third, we've seen at Sassuolo that he's a clinical finisher, which is really something that has been lacking this season, especially from our wingers. Insigne's numbers are down, which hopefully is an off year given the team's struggles this season and not the new norm for him. But also Callejon hasn't scored as much and Politano doesn't look like he's going to score much either. Another swap I think would be intriguing is Alain to Everton for Moise Kane. Now, I know I previously stated that I'm not interested in Kane and his drama, so let me explain why this one might actually make some sense. The main reason most people don't want Kane, myself included, is because of his immaturity. He's been dubbed by some as the next Mario Balotelli because he's clearly very talented, but his talent could easily be undermined by his attitude. However, there is plenty of time to turn things around for him. As much as I respect Ancelotti, at this stage in his career, he's not exactly the best at dealing with immature players. Reno Gattuso, on the other hand, is just the man for the job. Also, Italians have historically struggled in the Premier League, and before Kane moved to Everton, he had an excellent end to the 2018-2019 season with Juventus. Kane scored 6 goals in 10 meaningful appearances, and by meaningful appearance I'm simply excluding the matches where he only played in the final few minutes, and even in those 10 appearances, 5 were off the bench. So while I wouldn't be too disappointed if this swap never happened, it might actually be one worth considering. Okay, so those are two swaps I would say are more realistic. Now let's do a couple of hypotheticals. And this was actually really difficult to do, mainly because in order to bring in a big name player on a swap, you have to also be willing to give up a valuable piece. And I'm pretty attached to this squad, so let's take a shot at it. When I was thinking who might be a good fit for this club, the first player that actually came to mind was Leipzig's Timo Werner, but swaps don't really work for Leipzig's philosophy of developing young talent and selling those players for a profit, so I'm not really sure what you would send to them besides cash. So I'm going to move away from the Bundesliga and towards the Premier League with what would be an absolute blockbuster move and send Kalidou Koulibaly to Manchester City in exchange for Gabriel Jesus. Now like I said, these are all hypothetical, I don't actually expect this to happen for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that Sergio Aguero is getting older, so Jesus will likely become the starting striker at City. But why Jesus? First, this would be close to a straight swap. Jesus, I believe, is valued around 60 million euros, so Napoli would probably get some cash back in return. Second, Jesus is only 23 years old, believe it or not. He seems older because he's been around for a few years now. Third, we could definitely use a true number nine, especially if the rumors about Milik being sold are true. And even though Jesus has dealt with a few injuries, and even though he's had to compete with Sergio Aguero for playing time, he still managed to score at a decent clip. 
In the 2017-2018 season, Jesus scored 13 goals in the Premier League and 17 in all competitions, despite missing 12 matches with a knee injury, and that year Aguero scored 21 and 30. Then last season, Jesus scored 7 in the EPL and 21 in all competitions, while Aguero scored 21 and 32. Finally, he would be the first Brazilian number 9 to play for Napoli since Careca. Another player I'd love to have on this squad is my fellow Canadian and Bayern Munich defender Alfonso Davies. Davies has turned a lot of heads with his play this year and his value is skyrocketing, though I don't think he's peaked yet so if you were to bring him in, his value would likely continue to rise. He's only 19 years old so this could be a signing that delivers for many, many years or it can be a player that you pay off over say a 5 year period and then sell him for a big profit after that while he's still in his mid-20s. He has a high football IQ, which is why he was able to transition from a winger to a left back. But because he was a winger, he also has incredible pace and he can cross the ball. And that pace is useful on both ends of the pitch. We've seen Napoli get burned on the counterattack a few times this season. Davies' pace allows him to track back and defend, which would certainly help to defend the counterattack. Now to bring in a player of this caliber and potential, you have to pay the price. And for this deal to happen, the price might just be... Fabian Ruiz. Now, I don't know if that's something I personally would be willing to do, but there is an argument to be made for doing it. I mentioned that Davies' value hasn't peaked. Right now, he's valued at about 50 million euros. We know Fabian's price is about 100 million euros, so Bayern would have to send Davies plus 50 million for this swap to work. Napoli could then take that 50 million and invest it in a replacement for Fabian. So, thank you, Eddie, for the suggestion. That was way harder than I thought it would be but it was also a lot of fun as well. That'll do for part two. In part three, we'll review another classic Napoli match. Today's classic match is the 2012 Coppa Italia final against Juventus, which is probably one of my favorite Napoli games of all time. This match was played at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome, and it was the final game of the 2011-2012 campaign. Just a week prior to this match, Juventus celebrated its first Scudetto since returning to Serie A after the Calciopoli scandal. Napoli finished in 5th place, missing the Champions League, which was a disappointing result after finishing in 3rd the year prior. And Cesare Prandelli was in attendance for this match as he prepared to assemble his roster for the 2014 World Cup. Walter Mazzari lined up in his usual 3-4-2-1 formation. Morgan De Sanctis made his 49th start out of 51 matches Napoli played in all competitions that year. Hugo Campagnaro played at left back, Salvatore Aronica played at center back, and wearing the captain's armband at right back was Paolo Cannavaro. Camilo Zuniga and Christian Maggio played on the wings, and Gohan Inler and Blerim Zemaili played in the middle. The triangle up top consisted of El Poco, Dikilovetsi, Marek Hamsik, and El Matador, Edison Cavani, who was the striker. Antonio Conte was in his first full season in charge at Juventus, and for this match, Conte used a 3-5-2, which is something we're accustomed to seeing Conte used nowadays, 
but that season he used a variety of formations including the 4-4-2 and the 4-3-3. In goal was Marco Storari, at the back was Leonardo Bonucci, and this was before he betrayed Juventini with a move to Milan and then ultimately returned. Andrea Barzali played at centre-back, and Martin Cazares filled in for Giorgio Chiellini, who did not play in the match. In the midfield, Conte's winbacks were Marcelo Estegaribia and Stefan Licksteiner. In the middle of the pitch were Claudio Marchisio, Andrea Pirlo, and Arturo Vidal. And up top were Marco Borrello and Alessandro Del Piero, who was playing in his final match for the Nerazzurri. Getting into the match, Napoli created their first opportunity in the second minute after Campagnaro outmuscled the Juventus defense before playing across into the box. Zuniga headed down into the ground, but Storari made an excellent save with his left hand. Napoli would get another opportunity in the 11th minute, but Lavezzi's low hard strike from the top of the box just missed the far post. Juventus had their own opportunity in the 18th minute, but the Sanctus stopped Marchisio's strike from just outside the box. Marchisio missed another opportunity in the 41st minute before taking a knock that would keep him down for a few minutes. The Juventus players appealed for a penalty, but it was not given, and at first it appeared that he simply shanked the shot, but the replay showed that Aronica did catch Marchisio on his calf before the shot, and I think if they had used VAR back then, Juve would have been awarded a penalty. Juventus had one last chance in the half and added time, but Del Piero's free kick from distance was turned away by De Sanctis. After a very tense first half, the scoreline remained nil-nil. At the start of the second half, the game became even more intense. Zemaili and Cannavaro were both shown yellow cards in the first 10 minutes of the second half. But just as Juventus were settling in and beginning to apply pressure, this happened. That was Lavezzi earning a penalty for Liaturi. Campagnaro played a long throw in from the midfield toward the right wing. Cavani got ahead on the ball and directed it towards the goal, which ended up in a bit of no man's land between Bonucci, Barzali, and Storari. And as was often the case, Lavezzi simply wanted it more. Bonucci clearly did not see Lavezzi as Bonucci was chasing the ball and then pulled up slightly, thinking Storari had it. But as soon as Cavani touched the ball, Lavezzi started sprinting and Bonucci's hesitation gave Lavezzi just enough time to get a touch on the ball before Storari came sliding in and tackled the forward. There was no doubt that this was a penalty. With De Laurentiis's face buried in his hands, too nervous to watch, Edinson Cavani stepped up to take the kick. Girato Storari andato a terra, calcio di rigore per il Napoli al 18 minuto del secondo tempo. Cavani contro Storari. Parte Cavani, è il gol del Napoli, è il Matador, 1-0 per il Napoli, sotto la curva nord, l'esultanza di Cavani, l'esultanza del suo presidente, gol numero 66 con la maglia del Napoli per El Matador, Edinson Cavani. That was El Matador scoring his 48th goal in all competitions that season for Napoli. And this was just an incredible moment to watch. You had Cavani and Lavezzi embracing each other at the corner flag. You had De Laurenti celebrating after hearing the reaction of the fans, and you had the Curva setting off flares, which slowly would fill the stadium with smoke. And there was some controversy around this goal. Only about a minute before, Bonucci made a run and attempted a through ball to Marchisio, but it took a deflection off of Inler before going out of bounds. 
but the referee, Christian Brigi, gave Napoli a goal kick. And you can only assume that Brigi thought the pass took a second deflection off of Marquisio, but the replay showed that it did not. Now, off of that goal kick, Napoli won a throw-in, and it was that throw that led to the penalty. After the goal, Conte made a double substitution, replacing Del Piero with Mirko Vucinic and Licksteiner with Simone Pepe. Conte also switched to a 4-3-3 formation, and the changes were quite effective as Juventus really began to put the pressure on. In the 71st minute, Bonucci's strike seemed destined for the back of the goal, but De Sanctis made a diving save just inside the post. Lavezzi was replaced in the 72nd minute by Goran Pandev. Like Del Piero, this was Lavezzi's final match playing for Napoli. He received a warm ovation from the cloud, including De Laurentiis, as it was pretty well known at the time that Lovetsi would be making a move to a big club in the summer, and he was linked to PSG, Manchester City, Chelsea, and Inter, and ultimately landed at PSG. At the same time, Conte replaced Borriello with Napolitan striker Fabio Quagliarella, and Quagliarella nearly equalized less than a minute after coming on the pitch. It was actually another substitute who did all the work. Simone Pepe made a brilliant run on the right wing, cut in towards the box to shake off Zuniga and Campagnaro using the type of cut we often see Cristiano Ronaldo use. Then he dribbled past Zemaili before firing with his left foot. Quagliarella got a foot on the ball at the last second to redirect it toward the near post, but somehow, with all his momentum going the other way, the Sanctus managed to get a foot on the ball and keep it out. Napoli continued to defend the onslaught of attacks and counterattacked when opportunities presented themselves, and one of those opportunities was in the 83rd minute. Si chiude la difesa del Napoli che ora riparte con Pandev, poi ad ampie falcate Hiller, vicino c'è Amsic che lascia proprio a Pandev sulla sinistra, arriva Cavani, Pandev, Amsic a tu per tu col Torai, Amsic e il 2-0 del Napoli, 2-0 del Napoli al 38esimo del secondo tempo, contropiede micidiale, letale del Napoli che ha sfruttato al meglio la sua principale caratteristica. Quando dicevamo che il Napoli non riparte più, questo è il calcio, quando ti senti pressato. This play started with a Napoli clearance in their own half. Pandev did really well to hold up the ball before picking out Inler's run on the right side. Inler returned the pass to Pandev, who was running with pace directly toward Bonucci and Barzali. Pandev had options on either side, with Cavani on his left and Hamsik on his right. He decided to send Hamsik in on goal, and he finished the play with a delicate chip towards the far post and into the back of the goal. And that would be the final goal of this game, with Napoli winning the Coppa Italia 2-0. Mazzarri non sta più nella pelle per l'entusiasmo. È già entrato in campo. Sì, sono tutti a porto campo. <ride> finisce qui, finisce qui. Il Napoli batte 2-0 la Juventus. Uno squarcio d'azzurro nella stagione dominata dal bianconero in Italia. Il Napoli si aggiudica la quarta Coppa Italia della sua storia. 15 anni dopo i tempi mitici di Diego Armando Maradona. Esulta il Napoli, esulta la parte dello stadio olimpico colorata d'azzurro per una serata indimenticabile per il primo trofeo. This was Napoli's first trophy since the Maradona era, and it was a first for De Laurentiis, Mazzari, Lavezzi, and Cavani. And what made this even more impressive was that Juventus did not play in the Champions League this year while Napoli had advanced to the round of 16. So Napoli had played eight more matches than Juventus on the season. So that's going to do it for episode 10. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends. You can also leave comments and reviews on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or if you would like me to review anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the pod at Forza Napoli Pod. 
You can also find my work at worldfootballindex.com, and I've got a few pieces in the works, including one about my father's hometown club of Avellino, so stay tuned for that. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. you do the same thing every day press one if you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes press two we heard you loud and clear so go to luckylandslots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino style games for free get lucky today at luckylandslots.com available to players in the u.s excluding washington and michigan no purchase necessary vgw group void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply